Hello again, everyone, wherever you may be, and welcome to the 159th edition of KHOI Community Radio's Capital Week, your window on the world of Iowa politics, where we explore and analyze who's been making news in and around the state capitol, what that news is, and what it all means. We are glad you're with us. I'm Dennis Hart, joined as always by my partner in politics, Laura Bellin of the blog site Bleeding Heartland. Welcome, Laura. Good to be here, Dennis. Laura, I am reporting again tonight from Disney World in Orlando, Florida, and Laura, this is a special night indeed. It is the beginning of our fourth year on this broadcast. Who in the world would have ever thought that? Our very, broadcast, our very first broadcast was Monday night, February 1st, 2021, 7 o'clock. And here we are, three years and 159 broadcasts later. Yeah, we didn't even know if the show would continue beyond the 2021 legislative session. So I'm just thrilled. On that very first night, I said that we would be here each week to try to make sense of all that's going on in the state legislature. And we have been. We have never missed a program, not a single one. And Laura, I can honestly say it has been a true pleasure working here alongside you. Yes, it, same same for me. I, I have really enjoyed doing the show and I'm looking forward to year number four. Well, here we are. It's year number four, episode one. Let's start with the state legislature. Boy, it was a busy week last week. Here we go. There was a hearing on a bill to remove gender ID from the Civil Rights Act in Iowa and a House subcommittee killed that bill. That was a big, big deal, Laura. It was high drama. And just to give people an idea, usually if there's no interest in advancing a bill, they don't hold a subcommittee on the bill. So it is relatively rare for there to be a subcommittee where the majority party is, has not already decided to advance the bill. And in this case, the advocates in the LGBTQ community were very alarmed because there had been several efforts to remove gender identity from the Iowa Civil Rights Act, where it's been a protected class since 2007, but none of those bills had ever received a subcommittee hearing. So when the House Judiciary Committee Chair Steve Holt, when he assigned a subcommittee and scheduled a subcommittee on this bill, which would redefine gender dysphoria as a disability with some protections, but would remove gender identity as a protected class, it was like a five alarm fire for the LGBTQ community. And I I was actually in a different room at the same time I was watching the subcommittee and the Iowa House on the governor's AEA bill. But I did then later watch the subcommittee. And it was very surprising. I think most of the people in the room even were surprised after all of the testimony that the Republican leader of the subcommittee and his fellow Republican, John, Wills, they both announced that they were not ready to support this bill. And of course, the Democrat, Sammy Sheets, everyone knew that he was not going to support the bill. So uh, it was just a very dramatic outcome. LGBTQ rights groups literally cheered the bill's failure. People waved rainbow pride flags erupted into cheers in the state Capitol Hall last Wednesday. It was a wild scene. Yes, and they were, in fact, chanting throughout the subcommittee because, as I said, I was in the next room, and it was very audible. There there was a protest going on in the hallway the whole time, so shouting different slogans, uh, trans rights or human rights, things like that. And then, of course, when the word got out of the room that the bill had been killed in the subcommittee, an enormous cheer, as you said. So just a day or two after that, Governor Reynolds introduced a bill to define the words sex, man, and woman in state law. So this was a big surprise to most people. This came out on Thursday that the gender identity bill was killed in subcommittee on Wednesday. And Thursday afternoon, all of a sudden, the governor's office introduced this bill. And it there is a definitional section which talks about uh, man, woman, male, female, just in terms of sex assigned at birth. There is a section that says 
that separate accommodations are not inherently unequal. Uh, that was alarming to a lot of people in the civil rights community because it it seems to suggest that the goal of this bill is to make sure that, for instance, transgender women, that they uh, couldn't claim discrimination if they were treated uh, differently from other women. And it is kind of an end run around amending the Iowa Civil Rights Act. But what's really new about this bill, I think some, several other states have passed laws similar to this one in defining man and woman and so on. But this bill would actually require transgender Iowans to have different birth certificates and different driver's licenses that would indicate their sex assigned at birth, as well as their current sex or gender identity. And so that would be really different. And I think that it would almost be guaranteed to end up in court. Similar bills have indeed been passed in several states, as you mentioned, including Montana, Kansas and Tennessee. Is there any indication that this could possibly be unconstitutional? Well, I think so. I, I mean, I think it would be very difficult. There's a passage in the bill that says that there is an important government interest in protecting people's safety and privacy. And in term, it's in the context of separate spaces for, let's say, men's and women's facilities, uh, violence shelters, and so on. But I, I think what would be especially problematic about this bill is the section on separate driver's licenses. I talked to a number of attorneys about this after the bill came out, and I just don't really see, I think it would be very difficult for the state to demonstrate that it has an important government interest in transgender people displaying what is basically medical information on their driver's license. Because if you think about how often you have to show ID, which for most people is a driver's license, I mean, anytime you check into a hotel, buy alcohol, vote. I mean, so you would be showing a, any random stranger your driver's license. So I, I think that would be fairly problematic. And I, I just saw about an hour ago that a subcommittee has been scheduled on this bill for Tuesday. That's Tuesday, February 6th. So we'll see how much interest there is uh, among the House Republicans in moving this forward. Action on those bills happened last week, but something that happened this Monday afternoon as we go live on Monday night, a bill was advanced to forbid discipline for school staff for using incorrect pronouns and names. Yes, I attended the subcommittee this afternoon. So this is, <laughs> and the testimony was largely against the bill, only a handful of people testifying in favor of the bill, but it did advance on a party line vote to one out of the subcommittee. So the concept is that school staff, educators, students could not be disciplined for using somebody's name or pronouns that was um, different from what the student wanted to be used. And a number of people who testified against this bill said that it really, in some ways, contradicts Senate File 496, which we talked about so much last year, which said that schools cannot use different pronouns or names that parents have not approved. Senate File 496 is all about uh, parental consent and, and parents uh, de designating the names that they want their children to use at school, whereas this bill is kind of the flip side of that, that even if the parent said, this is my child's name that I want you to use, the educator could say, well, actually, I don't really believe in non-binary, and so I'm just going to go ahead and use this other name. So I, I think that, it I mean, it, it did advance out of the subcommittee. It probably will continue to move forward in the House Education Committee, but I think this one will remain very contentious. If it seems as if we're talking a lot about education tonight, well, we are, because that's another focus again this year of Republican lawmakers, as it was last year. Also involving education, a Senate panel last week approved 
a K-12 school funding shell bill, a shell bill. Please explain what that is. So Iowa has had for decades, really since long before I've been following the legislature, they had a system where the legislature set the percentage increase in state aid to school districts. They would set that 18 months in advance. So for instance, they would pass that near the beginning of the legislative session, and it would be for the following academic year, not the one that's just coming up this summer. Well, under the Republican trifecta, they changed that system. So instead of passing the state aid bill uh, 18 months in advance, they they changed the procedure so that they would pass that during the first 30 days of the legislative session. And the concept is that schools, when they're planning their budgets, they need to know how much state funding is going to increase. School districts need to finalize their budgets usually by April 15th. So now, we're at a stage where we still don't know what the House and Senate Republicans want to do. The governor has proposed a two and a half percent increase in the state aid, but we don't know. We're we're pretty much at 30 days, just about 30 days after the beginning of the legislative session. And we're not sure yet how much that aid is going to increase. And again, school districts are needing to start planning their own budgets. And so I don't know what's going to happen, but I heard a lot of chatter about this last week when I was up at the Capitol that this is just, it makes it very difficult for school districts to do their jobs. You will rarely, if ever, hear Laura Bell and say, I don't know what's going to happen on this broadcast. Even <laughs> if we don't know what's going to happen, we try to fake it. No, we never do that. No, no. So anyway, we really don't know what's going to happen. Well, here's another one. This, on the surface, this is very, shall we say, not just partisan, but perhaps hurtful. A bill, a House subcommittee advanced a bill last week that would require schools to show fetal development videos in an obvious attempt to encourage anti-abortion activity, even among students. This was another subcommittee that I attended last week, and it was very emotional. There was a lot of testimony for there were a couple of women there who said that they wished they had seen something like these videos when they were going through school and maybe they wouldn't have had an abortion when they were young and had an unplanned pregnancy uh, within the education community. The sentiment was universally against the bill. It's it's very unusual for a specific curriculum to be mandated in a state law. Usually the state, the Board of Education approves curriculum. And there were a number of people who said that even though in, in theory, they might not even be opposed to this particular video, that the video that they were talking about is this baby Olivia fetal development video that they said that the problem is that if you put something like that in the code, then every time, maybe if you update, if there's a better version, a more accurate version of the video, then all of a sudden you have to go through the whole legislative process of amending the law rather than having, generally speaking, the legislature doesn't dictate specific curriculum like that. So we'll see, again, it, it advanced from the subcommittee on a party line vote. Uh, the, the usual suspects that you would expect that uh, generally support restrictions on abortion were very much in favor of this bill. I don't believe that it has passed the, the House Education Committee yet, but it, it probably will. So then we'll see how long before it's debated on the Iowa House floor. And still more on education. We've been talking the last few weeks on this broadcast about something called AEAs, Area Education Agencies. Governor Reynolds wanted to overhaul them. It got messed up. She reintroduced it. And last week, Oh, what a hoo-ha in the House and the Senate, a mixed verdict. 
This is going to clearly be one of the big issues of the 2024 legislative session. This area education agencies, which were created about 50 years ago to provide special education services and other services to school districts. And actually, I learned recently that Senator, now Senator Chuck Grassley, but at the time he was a member of the Iowa House, he was one of the key architects of this AEA system. It was something that was supposed to help rural school districts comply with federal law that required them to offer services to students with disabilities. Well, the governor uh, introduced a bill to overhaul the system. That was a non-starter. She introduced an amended version of the bill. And I attended the Iowa House subcommittee on this last Wednesday, which was very dramatic, a lot of testimony on both sides. And at the end, the two Republicans on the committee said, we need to have further discussions before we decide what to do, which again, as I mentioned, that's very unusual. Usually you're not even holding a subcommittee unless they've already decided to advance it. So then the next day, Skylar Wheeler, the chair of the House Education Committee said, he's not moving that bill forward. Meanwhile, a Senate subcommittee, which I also attended last Wednesday, they, the chair of that subcommittee started in dramatic fashion by literally dropping the governor's original bill. He had printed out a version of the governor's original AEA bill, which he dropped in the trash can that he had set up right by his desk and said, this is where this bill belongs. And even the amended bill he clearly wasn't happy with. This is Senator Lynn Evans. He's a former superintendent himself. And but they the Republicans on that Senate subcommittee did agree to advance the bill, but they made it clear that they're still not happy with the governor's amended version. They are going to want to see changes. And so who knows from what I'm hearing right now, there is still a lot of resistance to this, both in the House and the Senate, but especially on the House side. So it may end up playing out like the school voucher battle that we saw where the governor really has to lean hard on some of these Republican lawmakers to get this bill through. Laura, have you noticed there's a lot more drama on the House floor since you started going? <laughs> well, so far, they haven't yet debated any bills on the House floor. So, but I'm looking forward to covering this. This one will be a, a really interesting debate to cover if they do end up bringing it to the House floor. All right. there's. Um, let's get away from education for a moment because the GOP chairs introduced a bill last week that would up Governor Reynolds, top her. She wants to get to a flat tax, and this legislature has indeed passed a plan to get down to a flat tax of 3.5% in 2025. Not good enough for the GOP and the House and the Senate. They want to get down and get rid of the state individual income tax. As in, I don't want to get too much into the weeds on this because there are a lot of numbers and we don't know how much this bill is going to change. But I think that the governor is less wedded to the details of this tax proposal. I mean, she wants to have some kind of acceleration of tax cuts that were already approved in 2022. And clearly, something like that is going to happen. This, this deal that was announced last week between the Ways and Means chairs of the Iowa House and Senate, that's Bobby Kaufman and the House and Senator Dan Dawson, they, I mean, they have some kind of a framework. I don't know if they're, if all of the numbers are going to pan out, but I think that the governor is going to sign whatever tax bill gets through the legislature. I think the governor will be happy to claim victory and sign that. We've got so much to talk about tonight. Let me just tell people it's 15 and a half after the hour, wherever you're listening to us. And you are in tune with KHOI Radio's Capital Week, where we keep our finger on the pulse of everything political going on in Iowa. That's what we do. And we are now in our fourth year of doing it. I'm Dennis Hart with Laura Bellin. We're here each week to analyze politics, yes, with an Iowa flavor. Okay, let's keep going fast. A bill to require U.S. citizenship for in-state tuition. Holy cow. 
So I went to the subcommittee as well. And later it did pass through the full uh, House Education Committee. So this one is eligible for debate on the House floor. So the concept is pretty simple that a community colleges and state universities would have to confirm through some kind of documentation that somebody applying for in-state tuition was uh, either a U.S. citizen or legally present in the United States. And this not only did, of course, a lot of advocates in the immigrant community and a number of people who grew up who were undocumented growing up came and testified at the subcommittee about how important it was for them to get in-state tuition when they were trying to get a foothold. But what I thought was interesting was that people came from the Iowa Board of Regents and the community colleges, and they said they are not set up. They don't have a bureaucracy right now to collect documentation like a birth certificate or other documents or some way to store it or some way to keep it private. Uh, that A lot of students might find it difficult to locate those documents. And so they were saying, you know, they have administrative rules that have been in place for decades that say if you graduated from an Iowa high school, you are presumed to be an in-state resident and eligible for in-state tuition. So this would create a lot of headaches for them. But um, it they did advance and it was um, almost a straight party line vote. There was one Republican, uh, Brian Losey on the House Education Committee, who did not vote to advance this but otherwise, or rather the Judiciary Committee. Uh, he did not vote to advance this, but uh, all the other Republicans did. Just for a quick point of reference, a year of in-state tuition at ISU, about $9,000. Non-resident tuition, $26,000. Yeah, so it would really be out of reach for a lot of immigrant families. And of, of course, some of the people who came and testified said they were brought to the, this country as young children. So the sponsor of the bill, Representative Taylor Collins, said, look, this concept is very simple. If you're here illegally, we don't want to subsidize your education. And they said, look, they, they didn't have any say in whether they came to Iowa. All right. And in tune with immigration, this story breaking this afternoon, Governor Reynolds held a news conference saying there is no need for new federal immigration law and that President Biden should use his existing authority to combat illegal immigration. She said this today, Monday, after yesterday, she went down to the border to appear with Governor Greg Abbott down there in Texas. Yeah, so a group of a couple dozen Republican governors have expressed support for the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, in his stand, I guess you could call it a standoff with the federal government over what the razor wire and the other barriers that Texas has put up. And uh, the governor announced today that she is going to send another deployment. This would be a third deployment of Iowa State troopers. She didn't say when. She didn't have details. But it will, they will be going down to do a, some kind of mission in Texas to help secure the border. And it, it's interesting now that so this seems to be uh, the growing Republican consensus now that Congress shouldn't pass a law on immigration and that uh, the president should just unilaterally act to secure the border, whereas in the past, um, we had often heard that it calls for Congress to pass a much stronger law and for the president to sign it. So right now we have the backdrop right now is that Senate negotiators have reached a bipartisan immigration deal, and it seems like it's not going to go anywhere in the House. And Governor Reynolds uh, seems to agree with the idea that it's better not to move that bill forward in the House. <laughs> and the other side of this is that the presumptive Republican presidential nominee, Donald Trump, has made very clear that he does not want Congress to pass any bill on the immigration this year uh, because he would not like President Biden to have a victory in that area. That is correct. All right, let's get back to the state legislature. Uh, last week, state Democrats outlined a couple of agendas that have virtually no chance of being enacted, but they needed to get some 
publicity, some press, since the Republicans are controlling everything, among them a reproductive rights agenda and an economic agenda. So we saw this during last year's session, and we're seeing it again this year, that obviously Democrats do not have the votes in the Iowa House or Senate to move their legislation forward, but they still, they don't want to only be in the news opposing the ideas that the Republicans are putting forward. They want the public to know what is their idea, what would they be doing if they had the keys. And so that's what we saw last week. A a couple of things, as you mentioned, uh, the Senate Democrats introduced a reproductive rights package that was similar to what House Democrats had talked about last year. So it would be a constitutional amendment proposed that would protect the right to reproductive rights generally, not just the right to abortion, but also a very broad right to contraception. Um, Reinstating the family planning waiver, this is the Medicaid program that involved Planned Parenthood prior to 2017 that that had more people getting services. This would extend postpartum Medicaid coverage to 12 months, which Governor Reynolds has endorsed. But unlike the governor's plan, the Democratic plan would not change the eligibility for Medicaid for pregnant women. And finally, as I mentioned, a broad right to contraception. So this is something House and Senate Democrats are on board. And I think they're going to be talking about it a lot, just as you see Democrats in a lot of states right now are talking about abortion rights and reproductive rights. Right. And the Democrats' economic agenda, just briefly uh, raising the state's minimum wage to $15 by 2026, expanding the annual sales tax holiday. The reason this isn't going to go anywhere is because, to remind everybody, in case they have not been listening for three years to Capitol Week, the GOP controls the state house 64 to 36 and the Senate 34 to 16. Right. And so they don't, I mean, the the Democrats are not in a position to write the tax bills or the budget bills, but they said that they, this is, one of the points that they made during this news conference last week on this agenda was that the Republican majority is talking about lowering income taxes, but about 500,000 Iowans don't pay any income tax. They don't earn enough money to pay state income tax. And so these ideas, raising the minimum wage and uh, increasing the the sales tax holiday, those are things that Iowans could benefit from, even if their income is too low to benefit from an income tax cut. And one note today, uh, a sad note, former Iowa Agriculture Secretary Bill Northey, longtime Secretary of Agriculture, passed away at the age of 64. Yes, and I think this was quite unexpected because he was just at the state capitol, I think, last week. And so I, I I was very surprised to hear this. Of course, uh, bipartisan expressions of condolences. The governor has ordered flags to be flown at half-mast. Uh, Tom Vilsack, the current Secretary of Agriculture, former governor, who's, of course, a Democrat, uh, he uh, said that Bill Northey had worked very hard to support agriculture. And I mean, it just I, I just saw a lot of an outpouring today from members of the legislature from both parties. Uh, Bill Northey was first elected Secretary of Agriculture in 2006. He was reelected twice. He left the position of Iowa Secretary of Agriculture for a senior job in the USDA under Donald Trump. And more recently, he had uh, been it, he had been leading the Iowa, uh, the Association of Agribusiness. And he had been farming for years with his family near uh, Spirit Lake in northwest Iowa. He was 64 years old. All right. All right. Let's talk about campaign disclosure reports. This is interesting stuff. Laura, you are really into this. And so am I. A couple of surprises. We're going to go over all of it tonight briefly. First of all, District 1 congressional race. A little surprise here. Well, it, I mean, yes and no, because in the third quarter, Christina Bahannon, the Democratic challenger, raised more money than Marionette Miller-Meeks, and that happened again in the fourth quarter. So it it is not 
very common for a challenger to outraise an incumbent, but it it has happened before, and uh, and I I wonder if we'll see that again. Yeah. So Miller Meeks has one point six million cash on hand, and Bohannon has one point one two million cash. All right. Now District Two incumbent Ashley Henson, Republican, raised five hundred and fifty thousand dollars. Okay, she has money in the bank. Democrat Sarah Corkery raised fifty thousand dollars. She doesn't have much money anywhere. Yeah, this is not likely to be a targeted district. I will say that Ashley Hinson continues to be the Iowa member of Congress who she has a high what they call burn rate. So she really spends a fairly high proportion of what she raises, but she still does have more than a million dollars in the bank. But but in the in the case of Christina Bahannon, even though she trails in cash on hand, she has more than a million dollars in the bank. That is enough to run a credible district-wide campaign. At this point, the Democratic challenger to Ashley Hinson in the second district, Sarah Corkery, with about 36,000 cash on hand, uh, that's not really enough to run. It's certainly not enough, for instance, for paid advertising or direct mail across the district. District 3 Republican incumbent Zach Nunn has raised, we raised about 426,000, and he has 1.6 million cash on hand. But the surprise, at least to me, is how much Lanon Bakam raised, though he was not a candidate for the entire three months in the fourth quarter. Well, he came right out of the gate. Remember, we talked about this in November with endorsements from uh, the former governor and first lady, the Vilsacks, uh, state auditor Rob Sand, and a number of other people. So he did raise a lot of money very quickly, more than half a million dollars. That is a lot for a first-time candidate. I am going to be interested to see whether he can replicate that because the one thing that's a little bit of a warning sign is he raised a lot of money from people who have already maxed out. They've given the maximum amount to his campaign. So he's going to need, he can't keep going back to those people for additional donations. So he's going to need to bring in new donors. But Zach Nunn has never been a particularly strong fundraiser. So he does, as you mentioned, he has about 1.6 million cash on hand. But Lenamba Khan, I mean, that is, is a very credible showing for a challenger. And it's plausible that by this summer, he could be approaching Zach Nunn's level of cash on hand. And very quickly, District 4 incumbent Republican Randy Feenstra raised about 600000 and he has a bit more than $2 million on hand, and he's way, way, way ahead of any potential opponents. He is. I just realized, I, I forgot to say that in the 3rd District, there is another Democratic candidate, Melissa Vine, and she has raised far less money, only about 52000 so far. But I would say, I mean, if I were Lanon Bakam, I would not take anything for granted, because all other things being equal, women often do quite well in competitive Democratic primaries. But going back to the 4th District, of course, this is the most Republican-leaning district. Uh, Randy Feenstra, really a, a about as safe a seat as you can be. So Ryan Melton is running a very active campaign, but he just is, as was the case in 2022, he's not raising a lot of money. He has about $10,000 cash on hand. Okay, to show you the importance that Democrats are putting in a couple of these races, both Bohannon and Bacom are going to get the backing of U.S. House Democrats. Yeah, so the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee is the campaign arm of the House Democrats, and they have what's called the Red to Blue program. So they just released last week the first round of the candidates that are their top targets to challenge Republican-held seats. And so on this list of, I think it was 17 or 18, Christina Bahannon and I was first district and Lanam Bakam. And usually to get on that list for the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, candidates have to meet certain benchmarks, and one of those is fundraising. All right. Very quickly, we just have about a minute and a half left. A follow up to a story that we covered extensively a few weeks or months ago uh, about a hate crime 
against an alleged satanic display desecrator at the state capitol. This became a big deal, and there were new developments last week. Yes. So remember, somebody drove all the way from Mississippi up to Des Moines to go and behead the statue that the Satanic Temple had put up in in the Iowa State Capitol with permission. It was a, it was an authorized display. So uh, apparently, uh, this man has now been charged, Michael Cassidy. He has been charged with a hate crime. So uh, that it could be, if he is convicted, uh, that could be much more severe penalties. Yeah, Michael Cassidy wasn't just some guy from Mississippi. He was a former Mississippi congressional candidate. <laughs> yes. And I mean, it, it's fairly unusual to have a hate crime prosecution. So well, we'll see where this goes. Of course, many uh, Republican politicians have expressed support for what he did. And I just saw this afternoon that Republican State Senator Sandy Salmon introduced a bill uh, that is constitutionally problematic that would ban satanic displays on state property. Oh, my. Laura, we're in our fourth year. What are you going to be doing this week? You, are, you have newly found powers on the state house floor. What are you going to be doing this week? Oh, I just have a long list of, of committees that I'm going to. I'm tracking. There are a number of bills related to people with disabilities that I'm watching closely. There is a bill uh, that is in subcommittee tomorrow that's related to allowing people not only to breastfeed in public places, but to express breast milk in public places. And so I just have my eye on a lot of things. I'll be down at the Capitol, I think, every day this week. And we'll be back here next Monday night, live at 7 o'clock. Laura, we're out of time. Thank you so much. Oh, good to be here, Dennis. You have been listening to Capital Week on KHOI Community Radio. A reminder that the views and opinions expressed here did not necessarily reflect the opinions of KHOI or its staff. Laura and I will indeed be back here next week at the same time. And we're going to be talking about everything interesting, important, or entertaining about politics, Iowa style. And next week... I'm going to be back in California at my regular studio spot there, as if we needed more attractions on this show. Until then, thank you so much for the privilege of your time. Truly, Laura and I appreciate it, and we value it. Between now and then, as we begin week two of our fourth year, let's all go ahead, all of us, and have a safe, healthy, and very, very happy week.